If at the end of your career, all you can say is, I was a national champion and we won a lot of games, then I would say it wasn't worth the time and energy. But if you can look back and say, I learned a lot about myself. I did things I never thought possible, both physically and psychologically. I made the most important and lasting relationships of my life. I've learned that helping others and seeing them succeed at something is better than having it happen to me. Then it is without question worth all that you do. That's a quote from an email Scott Fry, the women's soccer coach at Messiah College, sent to his team in 2010. And it sums up the many measures of success that both the men and women's program have beyond winning national championships. In our third and final episode, going deep inside the Messiah College soccer culture with guests Mike Zigarelli and Dave Brandt, we're going to get some final takeaways from both Coach Brandt as well as Mike Zigarelli on where we can go from here as coaches. Welcome back to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin, joined by my friend and co-host Nate Sanderson. The podcast is brought to you by TOC Culture Consulting, which provides mentorship and community for coaches who are looking to build better cultures and become better leaders. If you'd like to join our mentorship program as well as community, you can schedule a call with Nate or myself at thriveonchallenge.com, as well as you can get the notes to this episode and every episode of the Coaching Culture Podcast. Now, let's jump into the last part of our conversation with Coach Dave Brandt. Dave, I want to ask you a couple of questions just based on your own personal experience in coaching here. Um, the first one being, I mean, you mentioned now you've gone from Messiah to the Naval Academy to Pittsburgh to Hope. You've made some job changes here over the last 15 to 20 years. And I know a lot of our coaches have encountered opportunities but don't always know, how do you think through that? I mean, there's the one thing of, you know, I want to be challenged at the next level. Could my stuff work? Could my, my vision work in a, in a different setting, in a larger, you know, bigger level, whatever it might be? But just the thought process, your discernment process, how did you go about thinking about, because I'm sure you had plenty of opportunities before the Naval Academy. How do you think through job opportunities and when to make a move and when to stay? Yeah, that's a... Um, so I'm trying to think of how to answer this because my first uh, reaction response is you're asking the wrong guy because I'm not sure uh, uh, if if I've thought through that process well. You know, crazily, I actually did not have opportunities for the Naval Academy. It's the darnest thing. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity at Navy. And, you know, I don't know how to judge these things. And again, that's a terrible answer. I'm just being honest. Um, So people know not to ask me, ask somebody who knows. But I look back, I think the Naval Academy was just an incredible place to be, unbelievable life experience, absolutely awesome, loved it. And, you know, I think uh, then I went into the pro game in Pittsburgh is is what happened. And I've just always been fascinated by the pro game. Um, and, and so I, that was probably a dumb move um, to leave the Naval Academy. I, if I had to do over again, I, I wouldn't do it, period. And so you know, that just is what it is. That being said, I had an amazing two-year experience in the pros. I mean, amazing. The people I got to meet, the stuff I got to do, the players I got to work with, it was awesome. I got to do soccer all the time, right? Because it's the pros. It was just absolutely amazing. So, you know, in that sense, um, it's okay. And it's not a regret because I got to do it. It's experience I, you know, that, that now I, I value still. Um, but, you know, how do you work through that stuff? Man, I've got really good friends who've stayed um, and, and just great coaches and people I love and respect who've stayed at one place. And I've got others I know who've moved. And 
you know, I was at one place for 32 years. I was at Messiah from the time I was 14 till I was 46. And some of what contributed to my um, leaving was simply that, you know, my wife and I knew the world was bigger than Mechanicsburg, uh, Pennsylvania. Look at JP, he lived in Mechanicsburg, now he's in Ireland. But, you know, and for someone else, um, that's fine and it doesn't matter. For us, we'd just been there long enough and we wanted to experience um, something else. And so that really has nothing to do with profession, it just has to do with life. So I think there's so many variables there for anybody that I at least um, probably do a rotten job of answering that. So there you go, but that's an answer nonetheless. Oh, that's all right. It's your answer, so we'll, we'll take it. Uh, <laughs> here's my other question for you. You, you mentioned uh, your long stint as an assistant coach before getting the head job at Messiah. Um, and one of the challenges that, that so many coaches that we work with face is getting alignment with their staff. You know, whether they have this vision, they have this ideal of how they want to play, how they want to practice, who they want to be. And a lot of our coaches are at the high school level and they don't always have the ability to just go find another coach that's going to buy into that. What kind of advice would you give to someone who, you know, clings to a vision, um, but maybe struggles to get their staff to align to that, you know, both from your experience as an assistant coach with a vision himself, and then obviously, you know, in your experience as a head coach? Yeah, I think, you know, this is this is where business writers would, of course, talk about getting, you know, quote unquote, the right people on the bus. Right. And so but but then you have situations like you just mentioned where there really isn't another option uh, for one reason or another. This is the person or these are the people that have been brought together to work with this. But I, I think alignment is so important. Um, and, and people, I think, would maybe answer this different ways. I think alignment is so important that I think that it would be better, more beneficial for a leader, leadership, a head coach to maybe even compromise in, in whatever ways, in some ways on his or her vision or what this looks like or what they want in the name of alignment with the staff. Because one way or another, you have to be aligned, again, my opinion. Otherwise, um, it just produces all sorts of issues, problems, fights or whatever, and, and every day becomes a battle. And so you know, that may not be someone else's answer, but I think alignment is that critical. And I, I think a piece of this is just being honest, transparent, and relational. And at some point being willing to write, sit down together and talk. Um, not that everything has to be collaborative and you always need to give in. I don't mean that because after all, I'm a huge fan of an idealistic vision and um, going for it and all that. But this is where I say leadership is an art form. And I do think there's times when compromise is critical and essential. And so, you know, I, I would answer in that category just because I think alignment is so important. You've mentioned a little bit on the episode today about books. You obviously read quite a bit and Zigarelli talks about a few impactful books in, in your life. And I'm just kind of curious as a guy that's really big on personal growth and I read a lot myself, how you attack, um, you know, reading, you know, he mentioned there, sometimes you find one book, you might read it three or four times right. uh, before you move on to the next. So for whatever reason, um, I, I can't remember when it started at maybe 20, 25 years ago, um, I started sort of religiously taking notes on books. And so it, it's, it's a laborious process the way I do it. Um, and I would throw in, I, I've probably now become honest enough to articulate that I'm a fan of doing things the hard way. I think there's a health in that in a lot of ways, um, but it leads to me using words like laborious. So 
Um, any book I read that I think is worth its salt, uh, I underline like with a pen, literally uh, in a real book, not an online version. I underline what jumps out at me and then I go back and I literally type out word for word what I underline. And it is laborious. It takes time. And I produce for myself a set of notes that I print off and put in a little folder, one for each book. And I've found that that process, um, as sort of, you know, step-by-step mundane as it is, reading, underlying, going back, typing, putting it in notes, and then ability to look at the notes has enabled me to retain more um, from books because I'm sure like a lot of other people, I would get frustrated with myself reading a great book that I think is impactful and I think I could use and just not recalling um, as much as I'd like to recall. And so um, originally it was like five or six key books. Um, Now it's probably 200 or whatever. And I invested hours and hours and hours in this. Um, But I think it's just been a really good exercise and discipline for me. I mean, it's, it's broadened me. Um, I think it's added just to the depth and substance of who I am as a person. And it's just allowed me to learn from others in a way, maybe in a better way than I might have otherwise, if I've just given a quick read. Yeah. And I just want to, share a quick story on that because I think what you're saying is really profound. I'd say in my first five to 10 years of coaching, I used to read John Wooden like religiously and I'd read leadership books and I would underline and I thought I was reading with intentionality. But I think the big change for me was when I started doing exactly what you do. I do the same process. I read, I underline. And then like you said, it's, it's painful at times to go back into it, type it up in the computer, organize it, uh, for me, it's obviously oftentimes writing a blog about some concepts in it and how we might apply it. It's sharing with other coaches and I'm talking about those concepts. But it that change of just even typing it up, game changer for me as well, as far as my own growth as a coach and as a leader. So I just want to share that because what you just shared is absolute gold because I think we live in an age where there's so many great books, there's so many great podcasts, there's so many great speakers like yourself. And people will listen to you today and they'll go, oh, that's great. And they will be inspired, but then they will struggle to apply maybe even one thing that you've shared today. And you've shared a handful of amazing things that could help them as a leader and improve their culture. And that's kind of leads me to my last question for you, which is, you know, if you could give a message to coaches out there, uh, because you're, you're a role model, you're a, you know, I think once you reach a certain level of success as a coach, people really start to model you from the outside, not just your players. And so I always, you know, I'm curious if you could give a message to any coach out there, um, thinking of even your, your kids coach or your grandkids coaches down the line, what would that message be that you really wanted them to hear, to take in and, and maybe apply within their coaching? It's good. I, I thought you were about to say once you reach, and then I was going to say, I was going to hear you say a certain age, and I'm like, thanks a lot. So, so you, you slip by that. That's good. Um, I think I think that's probably the hardest question you guys have asked me. I, I really do. Um, you know that that single nugget of wisdom um, that I'm supposed to have. I mean, not on 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 the basis of you asking me the question, but um, I, I think that's hard. I I, I do think I think. Coaching and leadership is is complicated. It's hard. It requires passion and heart. And you know, so I'm I'm I guess I'm I'm um, inclined to say two things. One, I would beat the idealism drum again because I think the knock on um, idealism 
i.e. wanting things to be awesome, great, just right, the way they ought to be. You know, the, the, the knock is that it's unrealistic um, and that, you know, everybody, especially when you're young, you know, you, you got all this energy, you got this pie in the sky vision, you know, good for you. We all know as we go along, you end up having to compromise, give in, you forget, you lose your energy. And I'm sort of pounding my fist on the table saying, no, 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 it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. Like idealism, nothing more than a commitment to the way things ought to be, right? Commitment's a big word in any walk of life. But, you know, what are we here for? And so I've got an attitude towards work. I think it's a good thing. I think commitment is a good thing. It's not an easy thing, but it's a good thing. And it's just amazing what that sort of attitude, if you're willing to to commit to it, um, can be. I guess my other thing would be um, to just be real and to be um, vulnerable, vulnerable enough to be real. I tell my guys all the time, I'm like, there's no secrets with me. Like my heart is right here. It just is. That's just the way I am. And it's okay. But sometimes when your heart right, right here on your sleeve, like that's a good thing, but maybe I'm too much sometimes in a moment or I can make mistakes because I'm just being too passionate, but I'm honest with myself and with my guys about who I am. The other thing I tell them all the time, I'm like, fellas, like I'm not trying to trick you. This is what I want. This is why. And I just think this sort of vulnerability to sort of go both those places and say those things as simple as they are is really important. And I think in the end, you know, what you really ought to do is have a podcast and see what my guys actually think of me. Uh, right. I mean, like, but I honestly, you know, I, I, I think um, I think they would just sort of nod and be like, you know, he, he's just he's honest with us. He's real. And I know he cares. And so in the end, I just think those two things are, are really important and can go a long way. You know, whether they win me or anybody else next year's championship and all that, I don't know, because I don't control winning. I never have and I never will. But I control process and I can take responsibility and I can do my best. And so it's a little bit of a long answer, but uh, my best effort. Dave, we'll get you out of here on this one. And I'm going to try to ask this delicately now that you, you put JP <laughs> on the spot a bit here. But uh it seems from my vantage point that you might be closer to the end of your career than the beginning of your career. And I'm curious, as you, you know, have talked so much about idealism and vision, you know, as well as I do, I and mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, your perspective in coaching and in purpose and all of those things continue to evolve with experience and with relationships and the ups and downs of the coaching journey. And I, I just wonder, as you look over the horizon, you know, however long that is, and I'm not trying to put you out to pasture here, but for somebody that really thinks a lot about what the ideal situation would be, how do you look at kind of the back half of your career and what's left? What, what's the ideal, you know, for you and your coaching journey with, with whatever time, you know, number of years that you have, have left? Well, I, I just think, I think for me, um, it, it's evolved. It's ebbed and flowed. I've used that term a couple of times. I mean, it's been elastic, but, you know, a lot of this hasn't changed and, and I'm hoping it doesn't just who I am, what I'm trying to accomplish. And so, of course, perspective changes over time and, and you gain experience in this sort of thing. But, you know, honestly, I, I've always felt that experience was overrated. And, um, you know, I have experience, so maybe I'm hurting myself there. I don't know. But, you know, I just think idealism and vision is so much more important than quote unquote experience, right? I mean, show me a team that was seven and 12 that re is returning all its starters. And I'm like, you're showing me a team that's going to go seven, 12 next year. I don't mean that in the worst way that it could sound, but 
something's got to give and something's got to change. And in that sense, I think quote unquote experience can be overrated. Um, so I, I'm reminded of uh, just before we, we went live, um, I'm hoping this is okay. JP's in Ireland apparently. And I'm like, oh, I'm a huge U2 fan. So we chatted about that for a second um, before we started recording. So uh, I remember reading this once. Um, I think this relates to the question. Um, so I, I read that, that uh, Bono in his 40s or 50s, right, the lead singer of U2, was reflecting, um, uh, he had recently gone in, uh, apparently there was an artist ec- or photographer or artist exhibition, and there was a room full of Bono paintings or Bono photographs, I think it was photographs. So imagine that. Uh, none of us, I don't think, are quite so famous that that could ever happen, but um, it did to Bono. And so he goes into this room full of Bonos. And he said he was just sort of struck and he's walking around looking at these things with the artist. And he said, I noticed a picture of myself at 21. He's in his 40s now. And he said, the look in the eye was so much clearer. I'm like, wow. I mean, that, that like, what do you mean, right? He said... There, there was an idealism, there was a vision, there was a purpose, there was a take on the worldness, right? There was a, I can do this. He said that somewhere along the line, I forgot or I replaced with what he called front, right? With a veneer, with image. He said, it's, it's something I thought I had to do. And then a really cool comment, and I, yeah, I don't know, it was in his 40s or 50s when he said this, he said, I think I'm getting back now to a more real and honest place. So I do think it happens with a lot of us that, you know, we start out young and idealistic and then we're like, well, we have to appear this, we have to do this, we have to shelve that because that's just young and naive, that's dumb and it doesn't really work that way. And at some point, maybe in our later years, if we're lucky, um, we get back to that. And, and hopefully for me, you know, I've sort of stood fast in the gap and sort of never really gotten rid of that, hopefully, look in the eye at 21, right? But he said, he said that naivety, which I see now in my own kids' eyes when they were young, I thought it should be gone. I thought I had to replace it. So I, I would encourage anybody listening, so much of this for me is about just being honest with yourself, with others, and being real, not trying to be somebody or feeling like you have to be somebody. And so, you know, for me, otherwise, like over time, I've just sort of hoped to keep that uh, idealistic naivete, which I think in the end is a good thing. And I think the world needs more of personally and leadership needs more of um, from uh, slipping away or somebody stealing it. What will you miss most about coaching? So uh, again, I know what I'm supposed to say, but I'm going to tell you the truth instead. Uh, I don't mean this in a bad way. I feel like I'm supposed to say the kids, the relationships. So look at me sounding terrible. That's second though, I swear. I, I will miss um, making things work and forming something and creating something. I love to create something. I love to work with a group and see how close we can get to fulfilling our potential. Um, that's, that's what I'll miss um, right at whatever point, if and when I'm not coaching. But the relationships is second, I promise. <laughs> no, I appreciate you answering that because I, I think that's one of the things, you know, coaches go through rocky times. Um, or uncertainty in their career, just coming back to that thing of like, well, what if I lost my job? What if I wasn't coaching next season for whatever reason? What would I miss the most? And just encouraging them to make sure that they enjoy that today while they still have it, you know, and that, that's been an anchor for me. So I just appreciate sure, it. If, you- if I can add real quick, I, I've had a super unusual path, right? Division three to division one to the pros to division three, which is where I am now. 
And it's not one that I expected. But on the other hand, I get to do what I just articulated to you. I get to do it. And I'm amazed that I get to do it. And it's super cool. All right, that's it for our interview with Dave Brandt. If you've got questions for him, he'd love to hear from you. His email address is in the details of this episode as well as on the coaching notes. Now, Professor Mike Zigarelli is going to share how to apply Messiah's principles as well as share what he believes are some of the greatest challenges to building culture. Mike, I'm interested in this too. You know, it was exciting for me to get you on the podcast here, not just because you wrote the book, but because you're also, you know, well-versed in some of the, the scholarship and, and our professor of leadership studies at the college. And you and I and, and JP were talking a little bit before we got on air here about how you kind of see your, uh, yourself as the bridge of this story, you know, not necessarily the architect, but one that's translated it into lessons that can be applied in a lot of different ways. When you think about, you know, how you do that and you translate that to business or to ministry or to education, what are some of the, the big takeaways or lessons that you extrapolate out that, that you can apply in some other aspects of life as well? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've heard from people all over the country, all over the world in different contexts, whether it is, you know, a doctor's office, a dentist's office saying we're applying some of these principles or it's a cross country team or I got a letter from some rugby team in England or whatever. Right. So obviously the, the principles transcend. Uh, I think one of the, the most interesting uh, out of context things that happened. <clears throat> was when the uh, an executive from Chick-fil-A called me back in 2014. He said, a bunch of us have been reading this book and we're wondering if we can come up to Pennsylvania. This is down from, they're, they're down in Atlanta. We can come up in Pennsylvania and maybe you can MC a day where we meet with the, the varsity soccer coaches and just pick their brains a bit about organizational performance and team building and culture building and learn from them. I mean, this is Chick-fil-A, a, a world-class organization. They wanted to come up to Pennsylvania and they were going to do two things in, in PA. They were going to, to go to Gettysburg and learn how the generals won that battle. And they were going to come to Messiah and learn about this D3 soccer program and how it has won all these national championships. And then they're going to take it back and tell all their franchisees, you know, here's another way that you can make your restaurants better. Right. And so they came up and it was fascinating, just the, the, the banter back and forth. But they saw something there that would apply to their business. And so, you know, and we took them into the gym besides just sitting around a table, we took them into the gym and actually had them play soccer. We said, wear your sneakers because coach Scott Fry, the women's coach is going to take you through a bunch of drills and how to go from really little things to bigger things, to bigger things, to being able to put all these complex skills together into uh, a, a sort of game day performance. And it was comical sometimes, but took them from the little stuff to the big stuff. And what they said was, they, these execs said was, this is exactly what we do and we need to do more of in training our, our people, is train them in the, in the little details really deeply, really incessantly, and then add on some other things. And then you, you put all that stuff together and you get world-class service when somebody comes in to, to the restaurant. So yeah, this applies in a lot of different contexts, even, even a place like Chick-fil-A that we think is doing everything right. Uh, maybe this is one of the reasons they do everything right is they're still willing to to keep learning. I love that story about Chick-fil-A because people that have eaten there obviously know it's a great place to eat and we've experienced that culture. But they never stop learning, comes... right? I mean, that that's exactly. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think that's the 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 connection, one of the connections to Messiah is okay, so we're 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 the best this year, right? We won another national title. 
What more can we learn? How can we get to the next level? I mean, it's, it's not really about that hardware. It is about the, the relentless pursuit of excellence and even perfection. And so there's always another level to get to once you've won, right? Otherwise, there's going to be inevitable drop off. And, and number two is going to be hungrier than number one and competition is going to pass you. So that continuous improvement mindset and the, the uh, just the, the philosophy that we've never arrived, that there's no finish line, that there's always a higher level to get to because the standard is perfection. Whether it's Chick-fil-A or Messiah or Apple or whatever, world-class organizations tend to think that way. From your perspective as a, again, as a leadership professor and, and somebody in the field here, after doing all of this research and telling this story, um, you know, you mentioned there that there's other college that is, colleges that have caught up and there's programs that have obviously improved and, you know, risen alongside Messiah um, at that division three level. But what do you think are the, the biggest obstacles that keep other teams or might keep programs or keep leaders from being able to replicate, you know, some of these seven principles, like what is, because it's obviously unique, right? It's, it's a, such a unique story. It, it's not done by everybody. What, what makes it so challenging to accomplish something like mm -hmm. this in the way that they've done it? Yeah. And it was that quite unique. It might be in D3 soccer, but you know, this is UConn women's basketball. This is John Wooden at UCLA basketball. This is the all blacks rugby team in New Zealand. This is Arizona softball. I mean, there are teams out there that have had these, these dynasties and been able to, um, to have these, these long-term runs. But as far as what are the obstacles? One, I would say it's knowledge, not knowing exactly how to do what I want to do. I might have a vision for it, but as far as implementing that, as far as executing, I'm not really sure. So part of it is lack of, of knowledge. Part of it is, is maybe lack of time or maybe uh, the, the better way to put it is lack of will. Just given the amount of time it takes to, to, to build and sustain a culture that's going to drive everything else and change the mindset, especially teenagers, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. And especially teenage boys who might be much more egocentric than, than on the girl side. Oh my goodness, how much time does that take? Anybody who's a parent knows how much time it takes to try to, uh, to, to shift mindset and to elevate um, the, the will in some way. So uh, I think lack of knowledge, maybe lack of time or unwillingness to put in the time are probably the two, the two biggest obstacles. But uh, the, the coaches are absolutely clear on this. This is a system that could be implemented almost anywhere. It's, it's that transferable. I'm curious, you, you really come across as a guy that's not just a researcher, a professor, a teacher, author, consultant. And I know you, you mentioned in some of our email correspondence, you're actually coaching soccer, uh, I believe yourself. But I, I'm, I'm curious how this book might have affected you uh, personally, you know, within your own personal growth. Um, as a leader in, in the home and, and maybe outside of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when, when I asked, I remember asking Dave Brandt, you know, give me one secret of success. You know, if, if you just boil down to one thing and he said, without hesitation, without blinking, without looking at notes, he said, organizational culture is everything. Nothing is more important than an organizational culture. It's everything. And it's 100% under your control. And again, as a, somebody who, studies this, somebody who's in the field. Yeah, I, I kind of get that. But the, the depth and the intensity of the, the comment and sort of the, the centrality of it to his entire system and his entire philosophy really made me go back and look at, you know, what's the culture of my classroom? 
what's the culture of this this school that I'm I'm leading as as a dean? What's the culture of you know this this family that that I'm running? And what are the sort of the, the norms there? And am I being intentional enough at, at shaping these norms and, and this mission and this this sort of collective goal that we have as as husband and wife? And what's what's the culture in, in my my marriage? Any number of leadership context it, it would apply there. So I, I think that it's something that I I certainly knew, but I'm not sure that I had executed that, implemented that to the extent that I, I really should have. Because, you know, and leaders drive culture and culture drives everything else. And so that that's probably the fastest and most efficient and way to to affect behavior and to ensure that um, that it's stable long term. I got two more questions for you, Mike, before we get you out of here. Um, one of them is one of the unique aspects of the the culture and the organization at Messiah is that it is a faith-based organization. Uh, and that that higher purpose certainly comes out in the story of the Messiah soccer program. And I'm wondering if if you could just sort of speak to that in the sense of how that helps the coaches and, and the players to transcend, you know, just winning and losing and chasing championships? Where, where does that faith component really play into the story? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I mean, some might be wondering, can I do this in a secular environment? Can I do this if I'm not a person of, of faith, if I don't share that particular worldview? Is this just sort of this quirky cultish thing that happens in Grantham, Pennsylvania, or wherever Christians get together? I th- the general principle here is unity of purpose. And and then John Wooden, again, to go back to him, I mean, it was it was fitness, fundamentals and unity were his three pillars of success. And we understand what the first two are, obviously, fitness and fundamentals, but we have to be unified in purpose. We have to have the same goal. We have to be moving in the same direction. It has to be about the team rather than the individual. And we have to see it clearly and be going for it with the same level of commitment. In a faith culture, in, a, in, a, in our Christian environment, it's a little easier to get there because most of the students coming in, the vast majority of students coming in all share that kind of unity of purpose and that unity of, of worldview. And so it's easier to rally them around something bigger than themselves because it's already part of who they are. So if we say you know, we're playing for God in all that we do, or if as you know, the girls huddle up and before the game, you know, they don't shout team, they don't shout Messiah, they, they scream to the glory of God. Right. I mean, that unity of purpose is part of who they are. And then it's reinforced throughout the, the four years. It's just easier for a coach to gain that unity when it's already there to, to begin with. And so I, I think that that's a that that's sort of the general principle that, that's transferable, whether it's faith based or whether it's focused on something else. It really can't be focused on the individual. It has to be focused on something bigger than than the individual. And if you, if you can do that, then I mean. You know, nothing, nothing can stop you when you have that kind of unified mindset. So a big thank you to Dave Brandt and Mike Zigarelli for taking the time to share with us. If you'd like to get in touch with them, their emails are in the details of this episode. If you enjoyed this series, be sure to share it with other coaches and be sure to check out The Messiah Method by Mike Zigarelli. It's definitely in my top five books on culture. Thanks for listening to the Coaching Culture Podcast. If you haven't already, please be sure to leave us a review.